Oh, whoa, Luca. Woo. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Today, a very today's a very special show. Uh, thought thought to myself, who could I have on the show to really make great radio with? <laughs> <laughs> uh, from the Ringer, you know him as the Dime Drop. One of my one of my inspirations. Definitely an inspiration for me, um, Mr. J. No, Kyle no. J. Kyle Man. How are you? I'm not an inspiration for you, am I? I don't think so. You've been, you've, uh, you predate me in this, in this whole thing. Well, in the basketball thing I do, but when I had wanted to do more in video for a long time and, you know, one day I'm browsing through YouTube, very sort of disgruntled about the YouTube basketball scene. And all of a sudden I get recommended this video from this channel called Dime Drop that you had like, you had like 5,000 subscribers then. You hit me up that early. Oh yeah, we talked about this. Yeah. I didn't. Re- I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah, I, I thought we talked about this. Maybe we did. I'm extremely forgetful. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I remember you hitting me up. Uh, you DM me. Gosh, might have been a year ago now. Maybe I don't. I can't remember. But I, that's, yeah. I, I slid into your DMs. <laughs> yeah, you you rode in on a on a rascal or a hover round. Uh, yeah, a hoverboard would be my hover- vehicle of choice. You're known for riding a hoverboard around Santa Monica, from what I've heard. Yeah. That's the only way to get around. I mean, they have those little, uh, what do they have, those birds? What are those things? The scooters? Yes. Are those big in Santa Monica? Oh, my God. They're everywhere. This is, people are going, this is interesting now that we've gone down a rabbit hole of scooters. Um, last podcast, <laughs> <laughs> last, last podcast, I had the long David Blaine preamble before we started talking about basketball, and today it's scooters. And yeah. yeah, I'm going to going to hear it from the people. I really wow. my goal is to get people to tell me to stick to sports. Have, has anybody told you that yet? Have not, you like I, Okay. Not yet. I'm trying to push it though. Maybe if we have a long dialogue about scooters. Well, you have a very smart fan base, you know. I, I think people I do, that, it's people, true. People that uh, are attracted to the just the the nuance and the and the finer details about basketball. They're looking for they're looking for truth, and I think that uh, you're you're a good shepherd for for those people looking for that because uh, your stuff's sharp. Yeah, everybody should uh, subscribe. I, I was just telling you last night, like just poking around your site. I just can't believe you were just you were describing how Mel. It's interesting too that we both have three letter uh, significant others that uh, are pressuring us to stop being so immersed in basketball all the time well well, you know now that it's like the thing we do all the time at least here it's acceptable but before there was always the joke that you know basketball is my first love it's my my real true love um anyway you've done your james lipton thing now we're talking about our wives you've you've immediately (laughs) made i don't know how you do this charlie talk man charlie rose um what are we what are we going to talk about today well, you know, it's your show, man. Steer the ship. I don't know. What, what do you want to talk about? I'll, I'll talk about anything. Anything you want to talk about. Well, I mean, one of the things that came up that I thought would be really interesting to discuss with you was, and we, we chatted about it briefly the other day, is this idea of players you'd like to see transported into today's game. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you give me a couple right off the bat. Well, I, I got interested... Because there was discussion about like what Shaq would be like 
in today's game. Like how how Shaq would if you if you drafted Shaquille O'Neal in the 2020 NBA draft this spring, number one, I would assume he would go ahead of James Wiseman and uh, Lamelo Ball. Uh, <laughs> what uh, I mean, what would be what would be your approach to surrounding him in this modern game as opposed to what you did would have done in 1992? Well, the Magic and the Lakers had a a smart formula, which is they put shooters around him typically. And so the classic conversation with Shaq is that he was paired with, you know, Sonny Corleone, Michael Corleone, and Vito Corleone. <laughs> um, that is to say, really, you know, elite guards, Penny, Kobe, and Dwayne Wade. But but the thing people don't realize is, especially with the Lakers and the Magic certainly had it when the three-point line was shorter from 1995, and he was there for the 1996 season as well. But they just had shooters around him which gave you an elite offense, basically. So whether it was Robert Ory, Dennis Scott, Derek Fisher, Brian Shaw, Nick Anderson, you could play that four out. You could play that inside out offense with him. And he was just just destructive. He was one of the few sort of post-driven players in the history of the league who could really, really be a high-level offensive force. So I think you'd do the same thing on offense. The bigger question is defense. Yeah, I guess sort of a – I wonder if like Shaq's ability to stay in shape would be a little more chastised in the social media era if it would make much of a difference. You know, and Joel, Joel Embiid's gotten a lot of grief for the, the level of shape that he's in, kind of similar goofing around personalities. I don't know that it would have made much of a difference, but Shaq – yeah, Shaq out in space, guarding, guarding faster players, being forced. I, I mean, what do you think? How do you think teams defensively would attack Shaq in this in, in this modern modern basketball scenario we're in now? Well, I don't. The first thing I don't think you would see him at three hundred and fifty pounds. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, think so. When he was at LSU, he weighed two hundred ninety, two hundred ninety five pounds by the time he was a senior, and I think that body type. He was so big, so thick in the, you know, all the stuff that makes you heavier. The the old expression, big bones, but it's also, you know, do you have the right, if, you're, if your bigger muscles are big, if your femurs are big, he's just huge. And he had lower body strength. And so he could have played at 295 or 300 pounds, assuming he kept conditioning after a few years. And I think that would have been the target style where he was faster up and down the court. And he was a little bit more mobile when he was younger at that weight because once he got heavier, and Detroit, you know, of course, did this in the 04 finals famously, but it happened in 2003 a lot as well, um, a little bit in seasons before that. You just put him in pick and roll. And so the combination of stretch bigs, which some teams tried to play, you know, Sabonis was always fun for Portland because he was huge, he had a lot of weight and size. But God, he, also, he was a big guy. He was enormous, Massive. but he also, you know, could play out on the perimeter. Um, the Kings' offense with Vladi Divac, you know, high post Princeton cuts, things like that. So just the, those two things alone were the, I think, the the blueprints to attack him that you know possibly could have done a lot of damage to his impact if he played today. Because between the stretch big and the pick and roll spacing. We want we run more pick and rolls now. Um, the guy I actually think of is Carl Anthony Towns. 
as as sort of what we would see him. Oh, you think that that's what Shaq would be like today? Is that what you were saying? No, I'm saying in terms of the impact and the strengths and weaknesses. So with Cat, you have, again, one of the few – and I, I I have a video coming up on him that I'm excited to finish, but you have you have one of the few bigs ever who I think joins – you know, off the top of my head, Jokic, Shaq, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, to a certain degree, Wilt in some seasons. You just don't have many big men in history who could be like these fulcrums of offense, these dominant high-level offenses that typically is a role that belongs to a smaller player or a wing who can mm-hmm. orchestrate with the ball, right? And so Towns, Towns is a good passer. And he's just an incredibly skilled scorer. Totally different player, obviously. But what you see with Towns is you see high-level offensive production and impact basically year over year now for the last couple seasons. And the question with him is, well, what does it mean for the bottom line when your defensive impact as a center, as a big, as a guy who is pretty much just always going to play the five on the interior, what does it mean when your defensive impact is neutral or negative you know are you are you stuck uh in one of those situations so that's that's why i go back to him as a modern guy who can dominate on offense as a five yes he has a different style game but forget about that he still takes guys he still takes guys down to the block and abuses them um and so what would that look like from a guy like we see it also with other players like an extreme example is Boban Boban Marjanovic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because I I don't know. I guess historically we've only had like how many physically uh, Shaq's among the like seemingly singular physical specimens. I hate calling players specimens. I'm trying to get get out of the habit of doing that. But um, just physical talents throughout history. I mean, what, like just his physicality and alone would be enough to. Maybe zag in, in in the sense that I don't know. I, I always think about uh, – I keep thinking about that scene in, in uh, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, when they drop the T-Rex in San Diego. I almost feel like that would be like – no, the context wouldn't have – he wouldn't have to respond to the context. I just feel like Shaq offensively would just be Shaq as he always was. Like he was that physically overwhelming. I've had people come at me and just be like – I find myself in this situation a lot where um, – just kind of going back to Shaq again. Uh, I've I've had younger people who didn't really watch him live or, or didn't kind of get to go through the experience of, of what he was like to deal with for teams. Uh, tell me like, well, you know, Joel Embiid. I'm like, yeah, I think Shaq had like 50 pounds on Joel Embiid at one uh, at in yeah. his prime yeah. and was still mobile. So um, yeah, he's an interesting one. I thought I thought the one you brought up, Kevin Garnett, too. Uh, just kind of going back to the transplanting players across time idea. Um, Garnett, I mean, what what specifically about Garnett? I feel like I'm hosting your show now. What did I just do there? Sorry, no. I flipped, <laughs> flipped that on you. This is I great. I like picking your yeah. brain about this historical stuff. You know more about it. I feel like than most people. No, go for it. This is fantastic. Uh, Gar- yeah. So Garnett is another guy that I think would just be fantastic transplanted to today because he was first of all he was insanely skilled i don't i don't know if that gets lost in the historical shuffle because 
He's not really seen in the same spotlight as a few other players in his era, specifically Kobe Bryant and Tim Duncan, who, what did they amass together? Like 92 championships or something? <laughs> um, they won a Somewhere lot. Somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, just a rough estimate. And well, yeah, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you're just not going to see – his his physical tools obviously are going to translate because he's going to be he would be able to play five today I think for easily and uh, yeah like you were saying skilled but and and that Venn diagram of just insane competitiveness uh, combined with like he could easily be an anchor today he's one of those guys that I don't know it's it's interesting that we see a lot of those like middle linebacker I saw somebody use that terminology describing LeBron I was like that's pretty. That's pretty solid. And just the competitiveness, the physical gifts, the ability to like KG was just a really intelligent player too. like the way that he could. Yeah, it's one thing to be able to like recognize coverages in real time and have the physicality to sort of address them in real time and and also be like a great communicator and a leader. And I just think that KG was sort of a dart in the middle of this Venn diagram that of all of those different skills um, and not overly heavy, you know, sort of like. I, I've heard people kind of compare Jaron Jackson a little bit to Kevin Garnett. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I see that. I mean, the middle linebacker thing was the first time I probably heard that term in basketball was the 2008 Celtics season with Garnett's role. And that was when the game was starting to become more pick and roll heavy, a little bit more spaced out. And what that meant was the traditional dominant defensive player, the the Mark Eaton uh, archetype, if you will, right, of just like protecting the rim with ridiculous size and shot blocking was changing a little bit to more of a horizontal game. And by the way, that's not a brand new thing. Bill Russell had great court coverage for his size. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an aside, uh, and and my listeners know this, I'm always talking about real height versus height with shoes. And it's because of conversations like this where someone will go on basketball reference look up Bill Russell, see that he's 6'9", and think, oh boy, you know, Kevin Durant's way taller than Bill Russell. And the story there is that they used to measure players in socks. So all those guys in the 50s and 60s, you see that's their that's their sock height. But then sometimes there's even more because Russell, he was, there's an article where he admits he's been measured at six foot nine and three quarters. Mm-hmm. But you were considered kind of like cartoonish back in the day when you were too tall. There were discussions of banning very tall players from the sport in the 50s because it was unfair. And so he didn't want to be seen as this sort of like goonish figure when he was younger. And That's an important context to have. I actually had never heard that. Yeah, so, the, well, so, yeah, he ra- so he rounded down, and that's how he ends up getting <laughs> getting listed at 6'9". He would be a 6'11" player today and so you know when you can you connect with Garnett who probably was you know a good 6'11 without shoes <laughs> there's the whole joke that he's 6'13 right and then Jaron yeah. ja- Jackson I think Jaron Jackson's measurements at the combine were right around like 6'9 and three quarters um, you could list him at 6 and 11 of course he's got he's got arms for days seven oh and a God. half yeah he's a monster what, what's Bill Russell's wingspan I feel like you would know this I, I don't know that I don't know if that's ever oh. been um, if if it has been measured, it's in my all time player profile on my website. Uh, it's definitely in there if it's if it's been published. Because I'll look, I'll look for 
you know, in, in addition to just reading old materials and encountering all these things over the years, I will, if I don't have it, I'll go try to see, like Jerry West is famous for having very long arms and the only published things I've ever seen on it are things like his, his shirt size. So you, so you, so you like, you literally have to do a translation between the sartorial arts and like what an actual wingspan comes in. And then you're looking at hands and things like that. So yeah, Jerry West probably, I always say Jerry West, similar build to Dwayne Wade, uh, probably a, maybe like an inch shorter in shoes, I'd guess. And yeah. also very long arms. There's a sort of, um, I always look for like long talking about just like profiling players ahead of time. I always really pay attention. I it's a, it's a running kind of a joke and, um, among my like, community on my channel that uh i'm obsessed with like arms and and hands specifically just because i think that those the i think that normal human beings on a day-to-day basis operate within we we sort of have this um timing that we expect based on our length and what we're used to seeing and what we expect and that people wingspan is just something that you never can totally account for especially like wingspan with like explosive athletes and guys just can can utilize that for their whole whole careers because it just seems like people never totally adjust to to those insane wingspans like it just seems like it's an advantage that that never seems to dwindle but um I was I was curious too. I'd heard somebody just sticking on like historical discussions and how people would translate. Pete Maravich is one that people bring up. But what I think is really fascinating is uh, you you and I were talking about a. Vi- I sent you a video of Pete Maravich like in some conversation. Um, that, that's that's, that's a funny but, that's a funny story. You want to tell that story? Well, I was like. Uh, I think I was watching that video just to see if, because the, there was a kid, there was a clearly a player and a kid in the video, and I I couldn't pinpoint who it was, and you nailed it. It was Chris Ford. I should have I should have known that, but because um, I was trying to think of, is this the story you're, you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I, the the amusing part for me was Kyle sends me this uh, video. He texts me this video, and he just goes, he goes. Who's in this video talking to Pete Maravich? And it's like, you know, from 40 years ago at a banquet in, you know, probably like New Hampshire. And it's just guys <laughs> standing around the room talking. And it's one of, and it's, it's one of these videos on YouTube that has, you know, 491 views with like one comment. And Those are my favorite, man. Yeah, and I just love the <laughs> I just love that you sent it to me and you're like, you know, can you tell me who he's talking to? And and he was talking to Jimmy Rogers and who who actually coached the Celtics briefly, uh, longtime assistant coach under Phil Jackson, and Chris Ford, who made the first three pointer in NBA history. Ephemera like that, like is like my favorite stuff. Like I tweeted out some like documentary about Eddie. I, I just like going down the rabbit hole and like finding this random stuff that somehow YouTube really is like a treasure, a treasure chest for stuff like that. Like, but anyway, yeah, I would. It sent me down a rabbit hole just like of people talking. People seem to have this really, really embellished, inflated sense of who Pete Maravich was uh, in in terms of his shooting. Like in in like what's really fascinating to me is if you go and research and read what his contemporaries say about his shooting, they're like, yeah, he was like a really average to below average shooter. They were like he was a great ball handler and passer. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen a, a player, a great player from one of his peers confirm that he was a great shooter. Have you seen that? 
Well, I think Dan Issel described him that way. I saw Dan Issel talking about him, and I went to and and then and then this is a funny story too. And then I Dan Issel said something after that that came up on my Twitter about um it was like not it wasn't explicitly about not having many followers, but it was something about the way Twitter works and now he's getting used to it. And I thought to myself, like, Dan Issel saying this. And then I uh, click on Dan Issel. And I guess, I don't know, I guess he just started using Twitter. And in my brain, I'm like, Dan Issel, that's a, that's a really big person. Everyone should be following Dan Issel. Um, but he was talking well, he's about... He's big to you. Yeah, yes. big basketball nerd. A yeah. quick, quick, quick note on that. A, Dan Issel is the biggest human being I've ever seen in person. He's massive. He seriously is like a troll from like a fantasy <laughs> story. B... He doesn't run his Twitter. There's a really popular. It's like because he's. I live in Kentucky. And Dan Issel is obviously like a legend here, playing for the Colonels, playing for the Cats. He's he does not run his Twitter. I had somebody tell me that. So anyway, continue. He was talking about Pete Maravich. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, that was some awesome inside Kentucky information <laughs> there. Are we going in the in a good direction here? Are you pleased with it or? I don't know what we're doing. We're just. <laughs> we're, I don't just either. we're just rolling. I really don't. Um. This seems like as good of a time as any to talk about today's sponsor. If you want a free month trial and 50% off the subscription price at The Athletic, I have you covered here. Head on over to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That's theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. And you'll get access to world-class writers, some of the biggest names in the industry. John Hollinger had an awesome piece on my first video topic ever, actually, Pascal Siakam and Siakam's improvement this year. I mean, even after winning Most Improved Player, which is pretty crazy. I often read the Athletic app in the morning. You can customize your feed, which is really cool. And this morning, Ethan Strauss popped up for me with a very interesting take on judging players in small sample sizes. It's in his piece on Eric Paschal of the Warriors, who looks like he may be a hidden gem. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of great content, both nationally and locally. They blanket all 30 teams. They even do other sports, baseball, football, et cetera, et cetera, if you're into that whole thing. Um, sign up right now for that great deal. A free month off and 50% off at theathletic.com slash pod. That's theathletic.com slash pod. The pod lets them know you came from here. When you do that, you not only get a great deal, but you help support me and you help support this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, Dan Issel, he said something about Maravich as a shooter and passer, I believe. And and not, you know, that's just one contemporary example. But I do think that a player like that who averaged, you know, over 40 points a game in college, get the, the legacy of Pete Maravich and also, of course, uh, an untimely young death, uh, I think helps sort of bring out the nostalgia and the legacy for a player like that, even his passing. I mean, we could have an interesting conversation about his passing. That's obviously something I've studied historically uh, among so many players and teams. And I think he gets the hot dog on the mustard bonus, you mm -hmm. know, the, the Jason Williams bonus. It's like the function of the pass. So Luca actually had a pass like this, I think, last night where Jokic earlier had gone around the back, behind the back, with this crazy pass that I tweeted on Twitter, if you if you haven't seen it yet. Um, and then Yo Luca had a very similar pass, but Luca's pass wasn't to a guy cutting under the hoop for a potential layup. 
it was just a kick to the corner that kind of like dribbled <laughs> it kind of like dribbled over and whoever was in the corner had to scoop it up off the ground and the rotation got there and so yeah. so it's this beautiful looking sexy thing but unlike Jokic's pass Jokic's pass was all about manipulating the defense you know it was all about the angle of my body you're not going to expect the pass to come from behind my back and going behind my back gives me a better angle to the cutter whereas Luca could have just passed it normally and it probably would have been more effective and so sometimes there's that function over form or form over function thing that gives players like Maravich who is an incredible ball handler uh, an extremely creative passer sort of this nostalgic boost in our mind yeah definitely you know who 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 came to mind who has come to mind uh, when you were saying that is I think that I actually, and I put this in LaMelo Ball's comp cloud, but I actually think developmentally those two guys have had similar, and this is a conversation you and I have kind of talked or had a few different times, this idea of sort of basketball Darwinism, sort of like your environment. Uh, And this is all basically like across the board true in every walk of life. I think just that your, your, the adversity in your early environments can really play a part in like what you become in your like twenties and thirties. Um, I think we agreed pretty much on that, didn't we? I, I think yeah. We did. Who who was yeah. the who was the player in Lamelo's comp cloud? Well, I, I would say Pete Maravich and oh, Maravich. Lamelo have had have had similar. I, I just uh, Mike Schmitz made this point, and I don't think it made it into my video, but I agreed with him. I had a similar thought, just that uh, Maravich basically grew up in an environment where he was totally enabled, like totally enabled to try things, was never discouraged. Uh, was playing, you know, normal competition to great competition. Um, I know that at LSU specifically, like he played against national championship teams at the time. I know Kentucky played him several times at least. Uh, But LaMelo constantly playing against good competition or at least guys that were older than him, whether or not there's like documented tape of that or not. But he was always around good players with his older brothers. Um, And yeah, I I just think that that's that's an interesting thing how – how uh, I, I guess there has to be a time where that that experimentation has to come with some sort of wisdom when you switch contexts, and I think that's always a thing to watch with players. Like, are they smart enough to to know when that shift is going to happen? Uh, on Mello specifically, I've been kind of encouraged that he has been aware of that. Um, but like with Luca, I mean. It, do you get the sense that you were talking about that pass that Luca made to the corner that sort of dribbled to the corner? Um, is is Luca still kind of working that out of his system? That sort of hot dogging, like non-functional passing. Like, what's what's your kind of feel on that? I wouldn't go that far. I I do think there's experimentation that will. I think of it as always trimming the fat, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a guy who reads the game at a very high level his brain is sort of wired to be a step ahead and it's all these tricks and tools one thing i've noticed he did it last year a little bit but it's something that i feel like i mean he's gotta have done it four or five times already this season in the games i've seen that particular move that larry bird move where he gets near a guy he's he's on his back and he has Mm -hmm. the ball and he's 15 feet from the hoop and he turns and he two-hand fakes a pass over the guy's ear and then pulls it back. He loves that. Oh, yeah, yeah. In yeah. the middle of the floor like that, he is just a monster. I've wanted to, like, 
charts that I've had that on my mind the last couple of days. I guess I shouldn't give this idea away, but I've wanted to chart guys like him and Harden, those big playmakers that can kind of get to the foul line and get the player on their back. That that situation specifically, I think, is really interesting in terms of like the modern game. These big these big playmakers that are getting in the middle of the floor. Um, I don't know. Do you think? Uh, well, we I kind of talked about that, like with Penny and Grant Hill. Like uh, we talked about that, didn't we? Was that on my show? We were talking about that. Like, I, can't, uh, I can't remember that far back. <laughs> when was that? Uh, God, I don't even remember. It's been a couple months ago, at least. Um, which in our time is like a lifetime, basically. Um, but yeah, th- that that phenomenon of guys slowly working their way to the foul line and getting them on their back. Um, um, I don't. Was that a thing? Was that a big thing that Magic did? I've never really paid attention to that. No, the, the this, bigger playmaker getting to the foul line, or is that a modern? Phenomenon? This is a modern. So this idea of putting players in jail, right? Like really sealing them on the back in the middle of the court while you dribble. That's really a modern thing. Uh, and I think to your point, I'm incredibly intrigued with Luca specifically. Harden. Uh, I mean, I, boy, I got a whole, I got a whole historical podcast on Harden coming up soon he's yeah. a di- he's a different animal to me whereas luca luca has a, a sort of that like a better floater game than Har- and luca's only 20 of course harden has sort of been polishing his craft for a decade to get to where he is with what he's so good at but i really think that anytime you come off a pick and roll i highlighted it in the five thoughts video on luca recently like when he comes off that pick and roll and he gets a guy on his back, he could really just make a living setting up an office between 20 and you know 7 feet once he has a defender behind him because he's so good at every pass in that situation. He's so good at drawing contact. He's so good at change of direction. He's so good at up fakes. And he's so comfortable with any kind of like little floater or scoop shot around the basket. He's so creative finishing near the basket that... I could see him sort of fleshing that out over the years into a, a a play in an area that just is almost like his bread and butter. It's it's really it really is sort of like a, a new like a production, like a new frontier basically of production, like where it Luca has like we were joking around about I come from like a copywriting background, so I always have this inclination to like give names to like certain phenomenons. <laughs> like we were going to talk about anti-usage here in a little bit, but like Luca has just, I think the physicality plays a big part in this. Like his, I always call this his offensive bandwidth in which like a lot of things play into this. And it's like Luca obviously can sort of survey, you know, the, uh, the Zach Galifianakis meme with all the equations. Like he can take all of that in at the same time, a, because of his like crazy size, like he's so big that you can't really bully him. And, and if you want to bully him, he's savvy enough to like, you know, lure you into fouling him. Harden is great at this too. LeBron's great at this. Uh, but also that he, he, his ball skills are so great that he can get into the, he can get into a place. And I feel like these bigger playmakers are, set up in a way where um, their their sort of skill sets, their size, their mentality is all tailored to sort of playmake from from that spot on the floor. And uh, you talking about how it's a recent phenomenon to do that, I, I find that really, really fascinating that uh, where Luke is going to be it's a game, it's a it's a style of play that's going to age well, I mean, I would assume because Luca, 
like I made this point in a video about Luca that I made that he basically brings you into his world and makes you live in it. Like uh, he he's going to control the starting gun. He's not going to try to just cook you with his athleticism. Um, it's going to be, I don't know. Can you imagine what what's Luca's if he stays healthy? I mean, good God, what are his what are his lines going to look like when he's twenty eight? Like we're at, we're at your, where he's twenty. Well, in my version of the Good Place, there are no slash lines. You have to come up with other ways to de- describe players. Um, <laughs> I think I think I have the, the stack guy. I think I have the perfect name for the phenomenon you're describing. With uh, you know, you're talking about Zach Galifianakis and all that. When Luca gets a guy on his back between two ferns, that's that's in the middle of the floor. Right. We call that yeah. between t- oh, between when he two has ferns. The drop yeah. the drop big man. Uh-huh. And he has the, yep. the okay. Yeah. We'll just start. You can you can take that. that. You can take that. We'll I see. Yeah, I think I'd have to explain it every single time, so I don't know. Give it a trial run. See how it goes. Um, yeah. No, the interesting thing to me about what you're saying with Luca here specifically is his size. So this idea of the guard, the pick-and-roll guard, uh, turning the corner and then sealing that guy behind him, even in just the last few years, it's become so popular with smaller players as a way to sort of maintain that advantage. You get that guy coming in rearview pursuit, uh, and you know he's trouble uh, getting back into play in a variety of ways, influencing your shot, whatever it is. But if you can stick your hips back into him, um, it's the same advantage you get when boxing out or anything like that. Luca, on the other hand, he's tall. He's a big guy. He's a good probably. What, what do we think? A good six seven without shoes. I would I would assume so. He yeah. gets the little the little bump that people say eight, but I, it's probably seven seven and a half. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah. yeah, he's but that's big. You know, he's, he's oh yeah. Six eight with shoes or whatever it is, and he plays with that size. He knows how to use his body, and so there aren't a lot of guys, even in this modern trend, who are weaponizing that move. Who are also big, and that's why that's why I'm saying like I think he can set up an office in the paint on this kind of play because he's so he's he's deadly in so many different ways in so many different directions. So that'll be an interesting trend to watch to. To answer your next question, um, we both did videos on Luca at pretty similar times last year. Yeah, and, we did. Yeah, and I think we had similar conclusions. I thought he was a potential multiple MVP player. Oh yeah, I've thought that. Uh, I've I've been trying. Speaking of like <laughs> tags, I've just I tried. I was trying to think of a way to describe him and. I, I said he was like a motherboard, basically. I had I, I, I sort of bounced that off of some of my computer science friends. Uh, basically, Luca is just the type of player. He he is a foundation that you can just plug pieces into, like, and he's he can just raise. I don't know. I I felt blasphemous when I was watching him, but LeBron is is a, is sort of a physically. Obviously, no one's comparable to LeBron. You know, it, it, he's. I don't know if we're ever going to see anything like LeBron ever again in terms of like IQ and physicality and um, and athleticism. But yeah, like we were talking about just him getting into the middle of the floor. Uh, he's just has such an insane gravitational pull. Like if you dropped a, a bowling ball on a on a tight blanket, it's just like <laughs> you can't you. He has such a pull and a force that. Not a lot of guys like that, and also just that he he sort of elevates he can in, he can elevate personnel, and I just feel like that that skill um, that's something that jumped out to me immediately when I when I first saw him because I I uh, he moved to the top of my board uh, 
after I'd been watching for probably 20 minutes. I was like, this guy, I, I, I've said this before, I really wish there was a camera on my face when I first got a really good dose of Luca in game action because I was I was just blown away. Um, I'm realizing we probably should have censored ourselves from going down the Luka Doncic fan club. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, half an hour later, we're talking about his step back. Um, but no, he's very good. Before, I, I want to ask you about uh, John Morant and connect back to experimentation in a second. But while we're talking about draft boards, what's who do you have uh, so people can get prepared? Who do you have as your top three guys right now for 2020? Oof. Still fleshing that out. I mean, you're, there, pun- you're punting. No, 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 no. I'm not going to punt. I, I'll give you. I'll give you sort of a handful of names. Um, I'll tell you. I don't have James Wiseman number one. I don't really understand why people are saying that. I mean, I would. I would definitely say. I mean, he's in the conversation. He's going to probably go top five. Um, if he had sat. If he had sat out this year, based on, like on all the stuff going on at Memphis, I feel like he would get some of that mystery bump. Uh, that happens with NBA players, I feel like, um, that we've all sort of witnessed happen. Um, I would say Anthony Edwards is really interesting. You know, obviously LaMelo, um, just uh, off the top. I really like Denny uh, Advija. Yeah. I I don't know if I pronounce his name totally correctly there. Um, There there are a lot of interesting guys in this class. I think that um, uh, Guzman Aruba, I don't know if he's actually going to be in this draft. He's an interesting guy that people should go check out. pulling up my no 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 Cole Anthony for you oh yes yes yeah okay. I'm bad about forgetting names like yeah. that yeah Cole Anthony another guy that's interesting um sort of a, a really bullish obviously Greg Anthony's son for people who haven't checked him out like a guy who has a lot a really high ceiling probably closer to a, a Damian Lillard type like um a guy who good dribble shooter crazy good athlete um Really, really solid build. Like, uh, it can get to the rim and physically. Um, the you know he leans scoring right now, but but he's a smart player. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious because I've thought about this for about 20 years. Do you have a theory on children of good athletes versus children of great athletes? It's almost like the to me in my head, it's like the Peyton Manning theory. Although he's the most extreme example because Archie Manning was actually quite good. But, yeah. you know, maybe the um, maybe Barry Bonds is a better example where you your dad is a professional athlete. And so growing up, you get groomed around the sport with the best people in the sport, access to the best equipment and tools and training in the sport. And things can get very serious at a very young age without being... I guess for lack of a better word, weird. You know what I mean? Because if you're a young prodigy and no one else around you has been in that situation, that is a sort of life-shifting thing for you. to. It's like the child actor star. All of a sudden, you're 12 and your world's warped. But when your dad is a professional athlete, when you're Kobe and your dad is you know Jelly Joe Bryant, mm-hmm. it's normal. And so you can flex or push that muscle as hard as you want at 10 or 12 or 14 and I've always thought there's something about being the son of a of a athlete that's good enough, but not too great. If he's too great, then it shifts everything. Well, then yeah, then that whole other like uh, the pressure of, right. of meeting the benchmark of your, of right. your parent. Yeah, that's that is really interesting. I guess sort of the. 
Well, the I guess it's true with siblings too. Um, well, who's the best player who had a great like? What's the highest father son duo of all time? I, I think it's Peyton. I think Peyton Manning because Archie was, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head, uh, a Pro Bowl level yeah, quarterback. He was good. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I think it's him, and it's not to say that there haven't been other good father son combos, but. You know, that's probably – I think it's harder to have, like, an incredible fa- – okay, think about the Berries. You know, Rick Barry, clear-cut, first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest players ever. And then he has a bunch of kids who are good. You know, Brent, yeah. Brent Barry was was good. John Barry uh, was a solid role player. Made the NBA hard to do. Right. <laughs> um, like, yeah. multi- multiple NBA players. Drew um, was – right, Drew Barry? Yeah, there, was he at that... was he at Georgia Tech? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking he was Georgia Tech. He might have been with Stephon Marbury. I'm I'm pretty sure. Wasn't he mid nineties, mid to late? A lot of they were they were in that age range. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Canyonberry, much uh, Rick still uh, <laughs> still going there. Uh, yeah, Canyonberry playing for well transferred to Florida from anyway. Yeah, now he, you're, he now was, you're just showing off. No, no, no. I only knew him because he was SEC, but that, I don't, I don't yeah. think that he actually made an NBA team, if I'm not mistaken. But. That's, that's very, very impressive. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> out. Uh, now, I, I look at, looking at just sort of the guys coming up to like um, – well, well, I was just thinking about this too. How, how comfortable are you with um, – you, you were talking about growing up in the environment of your dad being a great – player i find the brawny situation to be absolutely fascinating for a number of reasons because they're sort of creating this thing where it makes me uncomfortable but you know i i lebron seems like a great dad to me and i've observed this in person i mean he's he's very very like active in brawny's you know just life and not not getting into like all that stuff but from the bat in the basketball sense he, they seem to really be embracing that like Bronny's like next, like Bronny is the, the, the heir to the throne. They literally use those words. Uh, he's posing for the same as the same in the same pose as LeBron did when he was a teenager on the cover of slam. Um, I, yeah, as it pertains to what you're talking about, I think Bronny is going to be one of the most interesting cases of all time. Have you gotten to watch him play yet? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the positive side of that situation is that assuming he doesn't get too into his head about it, it's such a supportive environment that if he doesn't turn out to be a good NBA player, it hopefully isn't a big deal. Um, but I just, what's, what is his height right now? About six, two, six, two ish. Yeah. He's yeah. not, he's not going to be, I don't think that I always say this, like he's not going to be the same physical, you know, freak that his dad was, no, but no also you need I was going to say, you always need to say that no one is. So yeah. it's not really that big a deal. But yeah, yeah. His, his, his dad's a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's a good athlete, and I like the way he plays. He looks very good. Uh, what is, is he 10th grade, 9th grade? How old is he now? I think he's going to be a sophomore, I think. He, right. could be, he might be a freshman. It, no, it's harder to keep no, 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 no. I, I think this this year is 10th grade for him. I Sierra believe. Canyon. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. going to be an interesting team to watch. Uh, but yeah, he's a smart player. Uh, he's he really def- he's a really deferring. Seems like he has a, like a high basketball IQ. Yeah, he's got a beautiful feel for the game. He he just has a beautiful game. But you know, and and I certainly learned this the hard way 
around that age escalating the competition that almost means nothing if you don't have the preternatural skills you know if you're not giant so you look at small like Cole Anthony's an example of a small player who you can look at playing bigger players and you don't need to put him under a microscope or be a rocket scientist to see that he has very high level basketball skills I mean the least surprising headline I've seen this entire month is Cole Anthony dominates in North Carolina debut you know like Cole Anthony plus Roy Williams that's that's just going to be all season I think so you you can see that with smaller players the bigger players you know they're specimens they're great athletes and you know they have NBA bodies when they're 16 or 17 I don't know where Bronny fits in either of those equations yet and so I think you know you could have a situation like Michael Jordan's son was talked about a lot when he grew up Mm-hmm. And he basically Still terrible for him. Honestly. Yeah, of course, of course. Awful. It was a, it was a ridiculous sort of pressure that was put on him, but he basically couldn't get run at Illinois. And and so the question to me becomes: if he's not going to grow, like if he's six seven, right? That's mm-hmm. diff. That's different because he already has, and he can maintain the athleticism, and he has the genetics to do that. That's the other thing, by the way, Kyle, that no one ever talks about. I have a friend who's a good six nine without shoes. And he had a late growth spurt. And what he reminds me all the time is, you know, because I say, oh, God, you know, if I were a couple inches taller, or my hands, you know, if my arms weren't T-Rex arms or whatever. And he says, he says, look, here's what happened. When you get bigger, there's a trade-off between size and agility in, in, any, in any, like, you know, person or living object. It's just physics. And so the, the brilliance the unicorn-like success of some of these players, Anthony Davis is a great example, is when you grow and you maintain your dexterity and your athleticism and your agility. And there's no guarantee that we're all going to do that. There's no guarantee that, you know, if you go from six feet to six eight, you're going to be Tracy McGrady athletically. Yeah, it's true. And and sort of this all kind of circles back to the sort of your your environment that when you're when you're developing at a young age because if you if you get those advantages early this is something I, I always try to keep an eye on with players is the the sort of arc of when they grow you know because if they get big early and they're not in an environment that's going to um, push them to to utilize some other skills um, it can it can kind of have an effect on whether or not they're going to imp- improve skill wise. Like and Luca coming back, we don't have to get back on Luca, but he's a good example of a kid who grew up. Parent was a good player, but not like an all time great player, like a good professional basketball player in Europe. Um, Luca's dad, and then uh, mother was a model, as everybody has brought up a hundred thousand times, and then <laughs> and then, but he's playing against you know older competition as a kid, uh, and then. You know, playing up 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 a couple age brackets, and then he grows. Like I think he he grows to six eight after he's already been playing against this good competition, um, and you know it, the rest is uh, the rest is what you're seeing now. But yeah, Cole Anthony going to be an interesting case. I think he's he's going to be better than his dad for sure. But uh, and I don't know. I, I guess the other one, uh, the other guy that I was thinking of that people should probably keep an eye on. I'm a big fan of uh, circling back to kind of the draft question. I'm a big. You still there? I'm I'm listening intently. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm <laughs> still here. Uh, I really love uh, Tyrese Halliburton. Shout out to my guy Brian Schroeder. He's a big fan of Tyrese Halliburton as well. Um, but 
yeah, it's not it's not a super great class, um, but there's going to be some interesting value, I think. Maybe not necessarily at the top if you're trying to swing for you know, a franchise All-NBA All-Star level type guy. I think maybe the value is a little bit lower. There's going to be some um, – and I, I think that's an important thing to think about from draft to draft, not trying to get, turn this into a draft pro- podcast. But um, watching these guys, it's going to be interesting to see if the opinion on that shifts at all during this college season. It's all right. I'm going to cut out all the draft stuff. I'm just going to throw <laughs> it on the cutting room floor. Um Kyle, what's going on with you these days? To, where can, where can I was going to say, how long have we been talking? I feel like <laughs> where can people find your work? Um, what what should they know? You know, this is uh, this is just really indicative <laughs> of how our conversations usually go. It's like, did we even talk about today's NBA at all there? But uh, John Morant, I guess, and Luke, we did, we did. I won't say that anyway. Yeah, right now I'm I'm making videos uh, on the Ringers YouTube channel, so go and subscribe to that. Um, and I'll be doing some writing for them Ooh, too, maybe nice. more. See, yeah. I love that the one thing, the one thing that I had in my notes to talk about with you. I said, I said, this is the guy perfect for this conversation is legacies. That we was, didn't even get to it. We didn't even get to it. That was supposed to be the topic of the main show. Do you have a Do you have a minute to stick around? And we, I know you got a hoop schedule coming up. Do you have? Yeah, I was wanting to play today. Uh, I just got to take the bugs outside at some point. Before so we'll I go. we'll do we'll do a little post show maybe on legacies because this is what I've been thinking about lately. You and I, when we discuss basketball, this comes up sometimes. And well, what was the one that pissed you off so bad that we were arguing about? Was it Durant? I feel like it was Durant. the The legacy with Durant was that was that the guy? Well, go ahead, go ahead on your train of thought. No, I don't. I don't remember. Um, it, it, but but here's my train of thought. Here's what I'm thinking who gets to decide what a player's legacy is i mean couldn't you say someone's le- like first of all how would you define legacy i'm curious about that how, how would you go about defining a player's legacy what does that mean well just the word legacy period i guess is just sort of what you what the public's what what you pass on of course, I guess it doesn't really matter because you don't really know about it because you're dead. But uh, or well, not necessarily dead. Uh, well, what you pass on, uh, what you're remembered for. I, I mean, I, I guess. And in terms of basketball, I think that that pretty much directly would be the definition that I would give it to. Like, um, okay. Uh, and and sort of well with basketball too. I guess your high, your place in the hierarchy of of uh, the discussion of the best players ever. I mean, I, I would say that's your legacy. Okay, so here's my question. Who gets to decide what the public <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Who gets to I decide know, just... that? Because let's say just for simple math, you have a hundred people that represent the public. Is that the average of those hundred people's memories and opinions of said player? Is it the loudest in the room? Is it the one is it the mode? Is it the one that's most hit the most often? Like like this is what always throws me when the conversation of legacy comes up, isn't that unique to the individual doing the remembering? Well, I think that you have a sort of instinctive need for it to be like concrete and like, <laughs> like un- as unassailable as possible to make it like, no, this is what his legacy is based on this. Like there's no room for discussion of like, no, no, no. I just want to ex- understand it. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's a necessary thing for us to talk about, no, it's not. The Hall of Fame tries. Obviously, they've airballed, pardon the pun, that <laughs> a lot. Uh, but um, 
I, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's not part of the fun of the discussion of just following this. I mean, it is it is a game at the end of the day. Um, well, what were you going to say? Go ahead. Well, I think this gets conflated a lot. I think the idea for clarity gets conflated with rigidity. Uh, it doesn't have to be in a box at all. I'm just I when someone says that or when someone so it often gets toted out as sort of like a piece of argumentation. So if I'm talking about Kevin Garnett and I'm talking about why I value his career so highly and we we never came back to him but his skill set like tremendous passer and the skill I was going to point to is his outside shooting. One of the great mid-range shooters that we have on record in probably all time and he's and taking that thing was high right? too. Okay, I and he's taking seven shot. he's taking 17 19 21 footers. And there was a very brief period of time 20 years ago where he started moving it behind the three-point line. And so what becomes interesting about him in the modern game, and again, I don't historically judge players like this, but for the sake of the conversation, it's an interesting thing to think about. If you were to transplant him into the modern game, he would be more effective horizontally as a defender because the game's more spread out. His mm-hmm. his bread and butter, you see it with Draymond Green, his bread and butter was reading these kind of plays and rotations early. He's large. He can play small ball five. He can destroy you in the post. Um, and he's the stretch big who, in theory, if he just moved that long two shot behind the three line, he would at worst be a solid three-point shooter. I mean, that was my point with Brooke Lopez, People say, Brooke Lopez's three-point shooting came out of nowhere. No, it didn't. He was a good long two-shooter and over 80% from the foul line with a good stroke. That's indicative of someone who can shoot. He just had to learn to move it back. So Mm -hmm. if Garnett did the same thing in theory, uh, I mean, he was already phenomenal in his era, but you might be talking about a unicorn-type modern player. Now, why, why did we go back down that rabbit hole? I was going to say, why? how does this yes. pertain to legacies? Yes. Because if I were to point that out to someone and they weren't as high on Garnett, oftentimes you hear things like, well, this is a guy, his legacy is that he was a loser. His legacy is he, oh, left, his, his, he left his legacy by missing the playoffs three times in Minnesota. His legacy was that they couldn't get out of the first round seven times. His legacy is that he got in a fight with a teammate or whatever. And so that's where I... I'm curious if you know if you read um, a lot of histo- you know other historical work and legacies get brought up. I'm just curious as to what does that really mean and who decides that? Isn't that just about what you choose to focus on in a player's arc? It is. I mean, it's it's definitely person to person, and it's it's. Uh, I guess we're we're not totally. I guess we would have to agree on what legacy is, which sort of reflects the whole nature of the conversation in general. But uh, in terms of Garnett, I mean, I mean, do you want me to address his legacy or just the idea of legacy? In ge- <laughs> no, like- just I'm more curious about the idea in general. But he's a uh, he's obviously sort of a hot button kind of uh, instance of that. Well, and and I guess this speaks to what you're talking about too. Is that I guess it it annoys some people deduct points whenever a guy switch teams because and I just realized I painted myself into a quarter with the Durant thing and that Garnett Garnett had a pretty active role in getting shipped right I mean he didn't he he wanted out no and no he oh, had, I thought he, he did no he had to be convinced to leave oh okay yeah well, he, I mean so this is what I mean long, why isn't why yeah. isn't his legacy overly loyal 
It's just it's this Who's is painting Kevin Garnett out there. I don't remember. Is, are people still painting Car- uh, Garnett? I feel like he shifted his narrative a little bit in terms of his career, his legacy. I thought he did. You, you, you think people are still too low on Garnett? Yes. And I feel very happy for you that you haven't had to dredge into the um, the sort of depths of the Internet to see. Uh, I don't think I think it's you live ex- in this world, though, too. To well, I do. I, I Yeah, I live in it because I'm frankly, because I'm really interested in different opinions and different ideas and how they come up and, you know, why people think the way they do. Um, I think it it's sort of that broader mirror back to the sport to see how we all see it and perceive it. So much of my work has been about that. But, you know, I think there's still with him uh, and uh, Zach Lowe is high on him and I'm hoping Zach Lowe does some historical work at some point. He's teased it. But if you mention the idea that Kevin Garnett is either a top 10 player and or better than Kobe Bryant in almost all circles of the world, uh, you will be instantly set on fire. Well, rings culture is the the cancerous sort of killer end of discussion thing. I think that, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess I'd be interested to hear your thoughts just on rings culture in general. If we're just looking at a player in a vacuum, removing rings culture, which can be cruel to be honest, I mean, like there, there are guys who didn't win rings that, and in other contexts, did they, did they just become these totally different players? Like if, if Kevin Garnett had never left Minnesota and gotten those rings, uh, or what if Kevin Garnett had played his whole career in Boston, exact same player, but he gets rings. What, what, you know, I'd be curious to hear what you have to think about that. Like what's, what's different. Does, is he, should we really shift the way that we think about him that much just because, of uh, variables that are out of his control. You know, like we talked about, like what if LeBron had been drafted to the Spurs instead of, you know, what if, what, what role should that play in how we look at a player? I know this is something that I'm sure you've thought about a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I think that <laughs> that is uh, fundamental to a lot of how I think we should go back and sort of analyze and evaluate player careers the one thing you can't control but you can't you get so deep into like physics and determinism and just things that you shouldn't really need to worry about you can't control the teaching and the environment that the guy gets so uh if garnett or whoever went to the spurs they would get pop in a different system and in theory that helps a player like in theory tim duncan benefited both from the culture and the x's and o's and the teaching of the spurs but also the stability of the Spurs as an organization. You know, we we never really had to see Tim Duncan put under incredible pressure and strain because that system was so stable. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's great that we got to see him in one light when he was successful, but a lot of people are interested in like, well, what happens when you're good? What happens when things don't go so well? How do you respond to adversity? We can't control that. So that's fine. That To me, that's off the table. However, to your point, we absolutely can say this guy played basketball this way. Garnett's the ultimate example of this for me because you can just do it with his lineups. You don't even need to go out. You don't need to look at any other teams or players. He can be like, look, when you give Garnett Sam Cassell or an aging Latrell Sprewell or another big and a, and a pipkin pop point guard in Hudson or when he goes to bot, you know, a shooter and a, just give him this. You can see the different things that happen to his lineups. They're some of the best lineups in the league. And in the case of Boston, they were 
basically the best regular season team since Michael Jordan retired. So, mm-hmm. so all of those things happen because of all the work. I mean, we do this naturally when we create a video, right? You're looking at the causal things that the guy does in the chain, the skills, the passing. You can take a bottom-up approach, and you can build that up, and you can say, this is how he played basketball, period. The fact that his team won or lost, those are all factors outside of his control. So well, You have to choose to do that, and I think to get uh, – I worry – I guess I'm not overly worried about it, but it's something that we encounter all the time. These sort of historical legacy discussions like we're talking about that for people to get to that point. I just don't know. I don't I have extreme cynicism, pessimism, whatever you want to call it, that we'll ever get to that point. I think, you know, Draymond's a good example. You know, historically, how would we look like Draymond was drafted for his skill set offensively and defensively was drafted into an incredibly good environment in terms of like schematically and the way those pieces fit together and i don't know how much like uh that the schlink or whoever it was that was instrumental in drafting him um bob myers i don't know uh you know he he was drafted into a situation for his skill set that was perfect like for for the things that he was good at to sort of come through and peek through what would it what would it have been like um i don't know that that sort of and how how we take those things into account, you know, I don't I don't know that there's a, definitely like a, a quantitative way that you can put labels on those types of things, but I think there are things that we just kind of have to parse through in in, uh, in sort of discussion. And I know I know that that's a that's a, a swamp that you wade through oh, every single day, big time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in in a sense, you're getting to how I describe and evaluate players. You know, uh, what's your championship equity? Well, where does that idea come from? Well, h- how much can you move the needle on a team? Well, different teams are different. So, different I, teams are different. Yeah, different teams are different. That's very profound. But, you know, the point I'm making is, in a way, an obvious one, especially to so many listeners, is the idea that we shouldn't judge you in your best situation and we shouldn't judge you in your worst situation. We want to think about how your skills actually apply to the idea of basketball in general to the idea of the NBA in general. This goes back to our conversation earlier about guys dialing down their scoring. Like when you get, when the league gets better and better, right? Like tomorrow, if we trimmed 66% of the league, if we had 10 teams instead of 30, mm-hmm. guess what? There would be a lot fewer volume scores. And how are those guys going to impact the game? That's a really interesting question. I feel like that would be, God, that'd be a video. You should do that. You should like, do that. That's right up your alley. Look, <laughs> no, it is not. That's, that's yes, totally that is something you could. That's a dime project. drop special. Well, uh, yeah, or a ringer special. Bite your tongue. Uh, okay, yes, so. it's a it's a ringer. <laughs> well, do, do we, they can't call you dime drop anymore. Uh, is that out? I don't, well, I'm trying not to. I'm trying to just avoid that okay, topic. All right. in public. And yeah, because I'm not I'm not supposed to do any more dime drop while I'm it's on indefinite hiatus, but I'm also not like addressing it publicly because I don't want everybody to be like, well, fuck, I'm unsubscribing. And then if I ever did come back, yeah, don't like, do that. Oh, gotta, don't don't yeah. unsubscribe. It's terrible. <laughs> Got a uh, subscription. It's the most precious currency. Where uh, were we? What were we talking about? We were talking about uh, just if the league was was cut down to ten teams. What? Yeah, uh, but that what kind. Would, I, th- I think that kind of question is pa- like if you haven't gone through that thought experiment, I think that's a critical thing to force yourself to think about because in a way that is what happens 
as you move up through the ranks. When you go from high school, you get pruned down to college. And not everybody who plays in college that played in high school can be an elite scorer. And that effect is smaller there, but it gets bigger and bigger the higher up the ladder you go. And so when you go from college and, you know, great, whoop-de-doo, you were a big scorer on your college team, um, you're probably not going to be able to do that in the NBA. A lot remember, of variables here. Yeah, lot of variables, so because you can choose where you want to go in college based on this, and also we're thinking yeah. about the ten teams thing, and it's like we also got to take into account, like, well, if we just in the reality we're in, we have thirty teams, and we're like tomorrow, we're like, all right, guys, we've got ten. Like that's going to look a lot different than if we had had ten for like thirty years. Right, like, right, players right. Know that we have ten. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, well, if you had sixty instead of thirty, there'd be more Kendrick Nunn signing on teams every day. Because there's the teams just need certain roles. But my point and, and sort of one of my crusades over the years has been that doesn't stop with scoring. It's, there's all the other roles that make up basketball that make an NBA team good. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you come full circle back to Draymond, it's like, yes, he is definitely in an optimal situation. But A, what is the obsession of judging him in a horrific situation? I mean, I've seen... People say, oh, I hope Draymond gets tra- – now he's – ironically, didn't get traded. But for years, I hope Draymond ends up on a bad team so he can be exposed. Well, I don't even know what that means. Like you're saying if you – He wouldn't put- be exposed. I just <laughs> think that he's – his his baseline would stay the same, which is a, a really good NBA player. But I think that he just I've, – I've thought this a lot about just – and I'm not trying to launch into this. But, yeah, just speaking to your point, like Draymond uh, was in a situation where he, he was allowed to – you know, plug his guitar into an amplifier that was that was louder, so that a lot of his strings were more pronounced. Just playing right. with these insane uh, off-ball talents and things like that. But anyway, yeah, go well, ahead. yeah, he's more valuable on Golden State. But guess what? That's what matters. Mm-hmm. Being valuable on a good team is the thing that matters if you care about winning playoff series, which most That's people, true. which most people do. Um, I think another interesting this this connects back to you know, what defines a legacy, you already see people saying Draymond Green can't score, he's a terrible offensive player, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he's not a great offensive player and he's not a scorer, but how quickly you forget when he, when he didn't look like he was shooting with a backpack on and, and he had a season in 2016 where he made 36% of his threes and most of them were above the break, so he had a stretch element where he could finish plays. Uh, not only did not you know fourteen fifteen points a game in the playoffs whatever it is, but I stumbled back this week just coincidentally on some 2016 playoff games when Steph Curry was out in the Portland series, the game they lost game three, Draymond Green had thirty seven points. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, he was phenomenal in that game. Yeah. Um, in game seven, game seven, one of the most legendary games in NBA history of the finals in 2016. He I, fucking brought it. Well, like, he was the was leading scorer, right? Yeah, he yeah. was unbelievable. 32, like, yeah. 32 points in that game on like 11 to 15 shooting or something and, you know, nine rebounds, eight assists. One of the almost had the James Worthy in game seven. But again, this is not to focus on whether he was like a secretly good scorer. It's just to say the legacy thing gets written all the stuff we're talking about interconnects, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the legacy forces people to come out of this and just completely wash that off the face of the earth like it didn't happen. Like he wasn't a guy who could actually hit threes 
and had some ability to attack a defense. Like he attacked bigs off the dribble and he pushes in transition. And mm-hmm. last year in the playoffs, he looked like Magic freaking Johnson sometimes. <laughs> that's a funny. That's a funny thought. But and yeah. you just uh, can't, and you can't get around that reality. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, that's my big question about legacies, Kyle. Who gets to say that? Because now you're going to have people. Oh, Draymond rode the coattails of the great Warriors teams. Stephen Curry and Kevin Kevin Durant will now be inserted into that. I already see him being inserted into that conversation. Uh, for the two titles they won. And uh, that made Green, you know, he couldn't score, he couldn't do anything else, and he got exposed when they left. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's part of the fun, man, just wading through it, and I think that's why. <laughs> that's why I think that's why you, you have a podcast and a successful site, and I think that's – people just love it, and they love to hear, from, hear about it from people like you. I mean, it's – you were talking about it all being interconnected. I, I, I don't know, man. I guess that's just – Oh, part of the silliness and also the entertaining element of just following our game as seriously as we do. If you want to support this podcast, you can, well, I guess there are three things you could do. You could rate and review in your podcast player, your favorite podcast store that you're listening to this. That always helps. Uh, Second is head on over to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketball pod and try that free month trial with the athletic 50 percent off the subscription price all sorts of great content and writers in the app there if you download that that you get access to and the third there will be a post show it runs a little over 20 minutes where kyle and i have a very interesting conversation about the culture around players sort of wanting to be or thinking that they are better than they are you know if you're a a G League player, you should be in the league. If you're in the league, you're an all-star. If you're in Europe, you should be in the league. Just sort of that idea around the culture of players and their confidence and perceptions of themselves. So that was an interesting conversation. That is available over on patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. You can head on over there to check it out right now. Thanks, as always, for the support and for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. Let me know what you think about it. And as always, I hope you are having a great day.